So this is going to be an anointed teaching that I have for you this morning. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody. My name is Luke. We've been in this series on finding God's guidance for the last couple of weeks. And I want to continue that, talking about how do we find God's guidance in the everyday situations in our lives. And it reminds me of a time that I needed to find God's guidance. About five years ago, I had just come on staff here at Vineyard Northwest, and I was leading the young adult ministry. And as I'm leading the young adult ministry, one Friday evening, this smiley, laughy guy with kind of crazy hair comes bumbling down the driveway, walks up to me, says, hi, my name is Micah Turnbow. I'm like, hi, my name is Luke. Mike is now on staff here as our prophetic pastor. And <clears throat> I quickly learned that Micah had a gifting that I had never seen really before. So I'm talking to Michael after he's been around for a couple weeks, and he tells me, you know, sometimes, Luke, God allows me to see angels. And I'm like, oh, you mean like you kind of sense that they're there, like you see in your mind's eye? And he's like, no, like God lets me see them with my eyes as real as anything else. And I'm like, oh, do you also hear voices? <laughs> He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but then I get to know Micah, and he, he's profound. And I watch him pray for people and minister to people, and it's powerful and impactful. And he has a powerful ministry in my own life. And I see that the fruit on his tree is good. And so after talking with him one afternoon, I decided to pray. And I'm like, Lord, I need to know if this guy is really legitimate. I need, is this a prophet that you're sending to our church? I need to know that as one of the leaders here. And so I pray, God, would you give me confirmation of Micah Turnbow? <clears throat> well, I go to bed and that night I have a dream. And in the dream, Micah appears to me and he's like, hey Luke, I forgot to tell you one thing. And I'm like, okay. He's like, read Ezekiel 2 verses 1 through 10. And then I woke up. So I write down on a note card, Ezekiel 2, 1 through 10, go back to sleep, wake up the next morning, forget all about it. But then after I shower and brush my teeth and I'm sitting down to spend time with the Lord, I remember Ezekiel 2, verses 1 through 10, find the note card. And so I go to look at what Ezekiel 2, 1 through 10 says, and I'm a little nervous because I'm honestly starting to think like, okay, what if there's like seven verses in Ezekiel 2? This is going to be such a letdown. Or I'm thinking, you know what? What if there's like 86 verses in Ezekiel 2 and 1 through 10 doesn't even make sense as a category and it's like irrelevant information and so I'm thinking all these things but then I go to Ezekiel 2 and if you go to Ezekiel 2 what you'll find is that there are exactly 10 verses in Ezekiel 2 and I promise you there was nowhere floating around in my subconscious that that fact was like I had probably read Ezekiel one time in my life at that point, and I probably, like, you know how when you drive and you get highway hypnosis, like you drive for 10 minutes, and whoa, I've been driving? I get Bible reading hypnosis sometimes. I don't know if I'm the only one, but like, I promise you, there's no way that I knew that there were 10 verses in there, but obviously God knew. And so I read the passage but before I even get to it, I look at the heading, and the heading blows me away, because the title for the section was 
Ezekiel's call to be a prophet to Israel. I'm like, wow, like I was asking, Lord, is he a prophet called to this house? And that's what I read. So then I read through it, and verse 6 really stands out to me. It says, and whether they accept you or they reject you, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, they shall know that a prophet has been in their midst. So I'm like, thank you, Lord, for your guidance. Like it was, it was incredible. It, it literally gave me such confidence and clarity, and it, was, it proved to be useful throughout the years working with Micah. But that's not even the end of the story. What's even cooler than that is I held on to that for about a month. I didn't tell Micah right away because I didn't want to put any weird pressure on him or anything. And so after a month, though, I felt like God released me to share with Micah. And so I pull him aside after a house group meeting. We're sitting on the back porch, just the two of us. And I'm like, I tell him everything that happened. And he starts freaking out. When I tell him that, because when he was a kid and he was first learning about prophetic gifting, God had told him, I want you to read Ezekiel 2, verses 1 through 10, over and over again for a month. And he did that. And it was God preparing him to be a prophet. If you read Ezekiel 2, a theme in it is God preparing Ezekiel for rejection. If you know part of Micah's story, he had to walk through quite a bit of rejection before he landed here at Vineyard Northwest. And so it was not only God confirming Micah to me as a leader, but it was actually God confirming to Micah that this is where he was supposed to be. And so it was an incredible, incredible example of God giving us guidance. And so, Micah, we love you. So that was a great thing that I experienced, but what about when you don't get a dream? You know, what about when you ask God for clarity? That night, you have a dream about unicorns flying around. (laughs) If you're super prophetic, you find an interpretation. But (laughs) but what about when you ask God to give you confirmation, and then you get confirmation on both options? One person gives you, hey, you should do this. Oh, okay, I'm going to do that now. Other person, no, I think you should do this. Okay, well, great. Now I am nowhere better than I started. What about when you ask God for clarity and you don't hear anything? It just feels like silence. How do we find God's guidance then? That's the question that I want to spend some time answering this morning. What does it look like to find find God's guidance in our lives and what does it look like to be guided by God? So why don't you turn to Acts 27, if you want to. If you don't want to, it's going to be on the screen. We're going to look at a story that centers around a guy named Paul. If you don't know Paul... Paul wrote 13 books of the Bible, which is pretty impressive because most people only get one in there. Some got two, and a lot of people didn't even get their one that they wanted to get it in. Like, sorry, Enoch, but your book of the Bible didn't make it the cut. So 13 books of the Bible is impressive, and that's actually more than any other biblical author contributed to the Bible. So this is the guy that wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. Also, Paul was a missionary. He traveled around Europe and Asia Minor, planting churches and spreading the gospel in the first century. And he just was like an early church leader, had a dramatic experience where he was actually, he started his ministry persecuting the church and jailing and killing Christians. And then he met Jesus on the road as he was on his way to a city, changed everything in his life, and he gave his whole self to God 
and began his ministry. And so this is the guy we're talking about. And this story is focused and centered around his voyage from Caesarea, which is kind of at the top of the Middle East on the Mediterranean, to Rome. And Paul, he had been told by God to go to Jerusalem after he had done three missionary voyages. And so Paul, he went to Jerusalem. A bunch of people told him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you if you go there. He went anyway. He gets to Jerusalem, he shares the gospel, and an angry mob attacks him. Just before he's killed, a Roman centurion comes in and saves him. And then he ends up going from court to court to court, presenting his case of the gospel and why he was an innocent man to Roman ruler after Roman ruler after Roman ruler until he finally gets to appear before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa, he's kind of like a governor, if you think about our legal system. You know, Paul really wanted to appear to the president, to the emperor, like the president, and this guy, though, that he was appearing to um, was like a governor. So King Agrippa hears his case, and King Agrippa was actually about to let Paul go. After two years of being in jail, having to go back to court over and over again, King Agrippa was about to let him go, but then Paul says, no, I appeal to the emperor, because Paul's ultimate goal was to get his case, his gospel message presented to the emperor at Rome. And so because of that, he had to be shipped from where he was to Rome. And um, the only way to really get there in a timely fashion was by boat. So with all of that said, let's read verse 1 of Acts 27. When it was decided that we would... Hello? Am I back? I'm back. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So I just read that to set the stage here. Paul is beginning his voyage to Italy, and he actually wasn't going alone. Not only was there a centurion and other prisoners and um, a captain and a pilot that were on the ship, but we actually know from, from this passage that the author, Luke, was going with Paul. It says when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, implying Luke, the author of this book, and Paul, and another guy named Aristarchus, and some couple others. And so here's kind of the first point. I, I want to pull three points about what it looks like to be guided by God out this morning from this story. Here's the first one. We are guided by God when we commit ourselves to people. When we commit ourselves to people, to the right people, the people God is leading us to commit ourselves to, but when we commit ourselves to the right people, we are being guided by God in that. I mean, Luke was risking his life by committing himself to Paul, but he obviously felt like God had called him to. And here's the thing is that God had not called Luke to Rome. He had called Paul to Rome, but since God had called Luke to Paul, Luke was going to Rome. And that's kind of what happens sometimes in our lives. God will actually call us to a person for a season, and that person or those people trump any other positions or places that or opportunities that might come our way. Like sometimes God isn't trying to tell you what city to go to, 
but he's trying to tell you what person to commit yourself to. And, what, and he's not trying to tell you what position to take at your job, but he's telling you who he wants to be your boss. Sometimes he calls us to people. And now I know what you're thinking. That sounds kind of culty. Like, I'm sure cult leaders have taught that same point. Yeah, I'm sure they have. But the way that you decide if you're going to commit yourself to a person or not is through healthy discernment. And just to briefly touch on this, what I believe is healthy discernment is this. One, you hear from God yourself. So maybe you feel just a sense that, man, I just feel like God might be calling me to like partner with that person. I feel like God might be calling me to that pastor. I feel like God might be calling me to this coworker, whatever it is. But you first, you hear God for yourself. Secondly, you ask some trusted advisors what they think about that calling. Because you know what? Sometimes we don't hear God clearly. Sometimes our own emotions get mixed in. Sometimes we, you know, sometimes like coincidences just happen. Like just because you were thinking about committing yourself to whoever and then a pigeon flew by, or not a pigeon, a dove flew by your window. Well, if a pigeon flies by, that's definitely a miraculous sign. But just because a bird flies by your window doesn't mean, oh, there's the confirmation, you know? But sometimes we get sucked into stuff like that. And so it's good always to be like, hey, a couple trusted advisors, I'm feeling like God might be calling me to actually like commit myself to this person. What do you think about that? And, and get some good input from them. Now, they should be objective. They shouldn't be people that have an agenda in your life except to love you and support you. And they should also hear from God. Um, but find some trusted advisors. Third, see if there's some passages in the Word that speak to your particular situation. Maybe a story from the Gospels, one of the Gospels, or maybe a verse or something. See if you can find some place in the Word to help you make your decision. Fourth, pray again. And then fifth, make a decision. And I think what's important about making a decision is that it's good and healthy to ask God for a time limit on it, you know? And at the end of that time limit, maybe you ask God, should I, you know, can I, should I, I'll, I'll reevaluate after that time is gone. So maybe you hear like, okay, I feel like God is calling me to this leader. I'm going to be with them for the next two years, no matter what. And so I think that is a healthy process of what it looks like to do this. But I really believe that sometimes our destiny is not about where we're going, but about who we're going with. And if we're too focused on where we're going to go and not focused on who we're going to go with, we actually miss out what God has for us. So the very first thing, we find God's guidance when we commit ourselves to people. <clears throat> so continuing with the story, they end up leaving Caesarea, and they, they're sailing in the Mediterranean, and they get about halfway to Rome, but they stop at the island of Crete, right off the shore of Greece. And they stop there because... They're realizing that it might be kind of risky to sail to Rome at this point. It's already September or October, and by that time in the Mediterranean Sea, sailing gets really dangerous. And so they're deciding what to do, and, um, and this is what happens. Reading on verses 10 and 11, this is Paul speaking. And said to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. 
So the centurion trusts the human experts more than he trusts Paul the prisoner, which makes sense. He was just a random, he was a prisoner along with the other prisoners. Why would the centurion listen to him? Why wouldn't the centurion listen to the pilot and the captain? But here's the thing. The ship ended up crashing because they didn't listen to Paul. And here's why. Sometimes we undervalue prophetic intuition and we overvalue natural wisdom. And this is my next point that we are guided by God when we properly value prophetic intuition. You see, what Paul was offering was prophetic intuition here. He wasn't the captain of the ship, he wasn't the pilot of the ship, but he had heard from God. How do I know that? I don't know that with 100% certainty, but just look how he says it. Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage. You know, it's not like Jamie and I are ever deciding where we want to eat, and I'm like, Jamie... I perceive that Chick-fil-A is the place we should go. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I think we should go to Chick-fil-A. Yeah. So I really believe that language, if you, if you actually look up deeper, like what the word means in the original language, it, like part of it is discernment. And so I believe that Paul is saying here, hey, I prophetically perceive that if we leave right now, we try to sail across the Mediterranean to Rome, that it's going to be bad. And so the centurion doesn't listen to Paul and they shipwreck. So we have to properly value prophetic intuition. Now notice I'm not saying that we devalue natural wisdom. That's been done way too much where it's like, I only want to have wisdom from God so I'm not going to value natural wisdom or common sense at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to value them appropriately, each of them. We need to value natural wisdom the way we should, and we need to value prophetic intuition the way that we should. It's kind of like, imagine that you were starting a job. If you were to go into it and you were to value natural wisdom, what might you do? You might show up early. You might stay late. Um, you might get your work done as quickly as you can. You might make it your goal to make your boss look good. All of these things are natural wisdom. And if you valued natural wisdom, you probably do them. And let's say, what would it look like if you valued prophetic intuition while starting that job? Maybe you go in and be like, God, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to be on time, blah, 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 blah. But what would you have be a priority for me while I'm in this job? And what if he said, I want you to be extra intentional about complimenting and encouraging this certain person, this certain coworker? And what if you started your job, you did all the natural wisdom things, but then you really make it your goal. Okay, I feel like God told me this, so I'm going to encourage and compliment this person every day. And then what if after a couple months, that person who's been at the company for five years gets promoted, and then they need another person to do the same job, and that person has been so blessed by you that they tell the person, hey, I know they don't have the experience yet, but I think they'd be great for the job, and you end up skipping years of work to get a promotion you never should have gotten. Like, that's how God works. That's how the kingdom works. Where we, the base level is all of the natural wisdom stuff, but when we follow God's prophetic leadings, when we listen to his voice, when we value prophetic intuition, we end up seeing doors open and opportunities present themselves to us that we never would have gotten had we not valued his, word, his, his voice. 
perfect example of this is how Jamie and I got the house that we just moved into in June. So let me take you back to the beginning of this year in January. I was praying and I was like, God, this has nothing to do with the house, by the way. I was like, God, how do you want me to be a better husband this year? Like I was asking God, would you share with me just like some word or phrase, some like goal, some direction for how I can be a better husband to my wife, Jamie, in 2019. And I feel like what he told me is, say yes to her. And all the wives said amen. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, I can do that, Lord. So I made it my goal to say yes to her. And when we were trying to figure out where we were going to eat, I would just say yes to her and not care so much, not debate so much, not argue so much. And so I started to try to find ways that I could say yes to Jamie. And that brings us to, let me, let me fast forward as I'm doing that, keep that in your mind. As, let me fast forward to the month of May. The month of May of this year, we had been looking for a house for five months. We had been in contract for two houses and we had fallen out of contract for two houses due to inspection issues. And so we were kind of getting a little discouraged because we were hoping we could buy our house earlier in the year because we knew in the summer it got crazy, like real estate, the market gets crazy in the summer. But nevertheless, we didn't buy a house those first five months, and so we're still looking, and all of a sudden, one evening, the house that we had been looking for goes on the market. We look at pictures of it, we... Look where it's located. Literally, it's, I, can, like, I, like, I could walk to work from this house. It's in this neighborhood. It's, and it, just, it had everything that we wanted. This house had everything that we were looking for. So we're both super excited. We call our realtor, and our realtor calls the realtor of the seller, and our realtor talks us up big time. He's like, they're a young couple. They're buying their first house. They work at a church down the street. They're good people. You want to sell to them. And so we're like really excited. And the next morning, that was a Friday night, the next morning on Saturday, there was an open house starting at 12 o'clock. So we're super excited to go to the open house. We go to bed. We wake up in the morning early. We get ready. We eat. We're about to head out the door and we get a text that the house had already been sold. And we were so deflated because it was everything we were looking for. And we also were like, wait a minute, the open house hasn't even happened yet. And our realtor's like, yeah, someone bought it without even looking at it. So that kind of shows you what the market was like. So we were super bummed. Jamie was really sad. I was sad and really mad. <clears throat> and, and so our realtor then tells us, you know, you guys might still want to go look at it. It might help you know what you want. And maybe, just maybe, the buyer will back out for some reason and maybe you can get a chance to buy it later. And I really did not want to do that. Like, I was ready to tell Jamie, no, I don't want to listen to him. Let's just move on. Um, and I, I really did. I wanted to move on. I wanted to just look for the next one. We had looked like 30 houses. So even though this one was amazing, I was like, well, hopefully there'll be another one at some point. But as I'm going to ask Jamie what, what, or as I'm going to tell her what I think we should do, she tells me, no, I think we should still look at the house. And my first inclination was to argue with her about why I did not want to look at the house. But as I was about to say that, God brought back to my mind, say yes to Jamie this year. And so I was like, okay, 
I was just like, yeah, all right, let's do it. I didn't even tell her that. Like, she didn't find out that I had this internal struggle until later. So I said yes. We went to look at the house. We walk in, and we see the realtor, and we're, like, being salty towards the realtor because how dare you have this open house when you've already sold the house, you know? <laughs> and we're, <laughs> and we're walking around. We're, like, critiquing all these different things, and... And we leave, and we're like, we're like, man, yeah, it, you know, we're just trying to find stuff to make ourselves feel better. We were like, it definitely wasn't as good as it looked on the pictures. And <clears throat> but we go home, and then the next day, we get a call from our realtor, and our realtor says, hey, that buyer backed out of that house. Not only that, our realtor said, in the middle of the night, the seller woke up and just had a feeling that he should not sell it to the person that was going to buy it, but he should actually sell it to that young couple that works at the church. (laughs) So he goes back to sleep. He wakes up the next morning. He finds out the buyer has backed out. And before putting it back on the, the market, he decides just to let us make an offer on it without anyone else making an offer. And now that's not smart because at that point in the year, houses were selling like that. Like in, like, again, like in eight hours, four hours of going on the market, there'd be like 12 offers and these sellers would be able to choose the highest off, like, offer and make good money on their houses. Like it was definitely a seller's market around this time, but this this seller just liked us, I guess, from hearing about us. And so we were able to make an offer on the house. They accepted, and we moved into our dream house for now. <laughs> so it was great. <clears throat> Here's why I share that story. If we had only valued natural wisdom in this process, we probably would have gotten a great house, but I'm pretty confident we would not have gotten a house like that. And also, the prophetic intuition that actually led us into getting this house, it like didn't even seem related to home buying. Like saying yes to Jamie felt like a wholly different category, but that's what happens when we value God's voice, his in-the-moment voice and leading in our lives, is that he takes stuff that seems unrelated and uses it to open up amazing opportunities for us. And so if we want to find God's guidance... We can't just default to natural wisdom all the time. We need to value that, yes, but we also got to value his in-the-moment leading and speaking as well. So the centurion doesn't do that. The centurion only listens to the pilot and the captain. They sail out, and boom, a storm hits. Let's read about it. Verse 14 and 15. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind, called Uriquilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. So a violent wind, that is like a Greek word for northeaster is what it was called. Like a northeastern wind came and the ship got stuck in a storm. And if you know the rest of the story, they get thrown around for two two weeks and they crash on an island. And so... Whenever we read about a storm in the Bible, whether it's a storm 
that Jesus calmed or another storm, I think a fair question to ask and a question I want to spend some time on before we end is, does God cause the storms in our lives? Like, when this Northeastern came through, was God like, okay, you didn't listen to Paul, so... Or what was, if that wasn't the case, what was actually going on? Does God cause the storms in our lives? Well, here's my answer. Yes and no. We do read that Jesus actually sent the 12 into a storm one time without him because he was going to walk out and, and, you know, and, and help them learn an important truth about following Jesus. And I think that God will sometimes let me fight through the storms that I create. Like if I make a bunch of dumb, boneheaded decisions and I find myself in a storm, sometimes God in his mercy will just remove the storm. But other times, God will be like, no, Luke, I'm going to be with you and I'm not going to be hurting you, but I'm going to let you fight your way out of this one. And so that does happen. And then sometimes God will tell us to let go of something. It could be a dream. It could be a relationship. But sometimes God will call us to let go of something and it will move us into a season of pain, of grieving that thing he called us to let go of. And so you might call that a storm because it doesn't feel good. And yeah, God caused that storm. But then there are storms that I know God does not cause. I know that some storms are a result of spiritual warfare. Some storms are caused by the enemy, not by God. And so basically what I want to talk about is how do we know if a storm is caused by God or if a storm was caused by us or if a storm was caused by the enemy? How can we distinguish those different storms? And I think here's the most important thing for us to know as we are deciding why we're in a storm. We need to be confident in God's goodness. If we're not confident in God's goodness, we're never going to know whether a storm was from him or not. And so my third principle is we are guided by God when we are confident in his nature. We are confident in the nature of God. We are allowing ourselves to be guided by God. And a lot of times when we get off track, it's because we've lost sight of who he really is. And so we know from the Bible that God is both good and sovereign. He's omnibenevolent and he's omnipotent. He is wholly good, there is no evil in him, and he is all-powerful. Like These are qualities of God. But a question I think that comes up, this is all related to the storm thing, a question that comes up in the world and has led a lot of people to atheism, actually, is if God really is good, and if God really is sovereign, then why are all of these storms in our world? Why is there all this evil in our world? Why would God allow or cause that to happen? I can't follow a God that would cause or allow that to happen. And so that's really a question that we have to wrestle with. Like, why is there evil in the world? If God really is sovereign and good, why does evil happen? And I think the answer is God is good and he is sovereign, but it's not as simple as it seems. And for the last point, I just want to dive a little bit into that. Like, um, yeah, it's not, it's not as simple as it seems. So it's a little more complicated. 
But before we talk about the complicated aspects of it, let's go and look at what does it mean that God is good just in a simple way? And what does it mean, what is his simple sovereignty? And I'm going to show a graphic later, and you're going to understand why I'm kind of going there. You can take that down for now. Yeah, take that. We're going to get, that's what we're going to get to in a second. <clears throat> so a simple view of God's goodness is this. Recognizing good and recognizing what isn't good without overthinking it. Like, diving in front of a bus to save someone's life is good. Self-sacrificial, selfless. Pushing someone in front of a bus to save your own life is not good. <laughs> okay, not overthinking it, right? A person beating cancer is good. A person not improving from cancer treatments is not good. A child being born is a child passing away before their time is not good. A person getting out of a toxic relationship is good. A person staying in a toxic, toxic relationship is not good. And quick aside, sometimes being taken, like stepping out of a toxic relationship can feel hard. Like it can, even though it was toxic, like losing that for a person can really feel negative, but that doesn't mean that staying in it is good, because we're not talking about feelings here. We're talking about what is actually good and what actually isn't good. So that simple goodness that God's desire is that we wouldn't push people in front of a bus, but we'd be the one diving in front of a bus to save a child's life. God's desire, if, you know, his goodness, his simple goodness is that he wants everybody who has cancer to be healed. He doesn't want anybody to not improve from cancer treatments. His simple goodness is that um, child, all children being born is good, and children that die before their time is not good. Like That's what we're saying when we're saying God's goodness is just simple. It's just simple. What does it look like? So now let's switch to sovereignty. What does simple sovereignty look like? Well, I think that a simple view of God's sovereignty is that he always accomplishes his will. Like a simple view of what it means for God to be sovereign, for God to be all-powerful, is that he always gets what he wants. He always accomplishes his will. And so, if it's God's will for a person to be five foot eight, they are five foot eight. If it's not God's will for a person to live in Ohio, they won't live in Ohio. If it's, and this, this is a Calvinistic interpretation of things, if it's not God's will for someone to be saved, they're not. And if it is God's will for someone to be saved, they are. If it's God's will for there to be endless construction on I-75, <laughs> there's endless construction on I-75. If it's not God's will, it's not. So simple sovereignty basically says, hey, if it happened, it was because it was God's will. And if it didn't happen, it was because it wasn't God's will. If God wants it, God gets it, is really the simple view of sovereignty. Now, you probably see the problem. If God's sovereignty is simple and his goodness is simple, we shouldn't expect to see any evil. If he's really good and he never wants evil to happen, and he's sovereign and he, everything he wants to happen happens, then there'd be no evil. And so this is where we understand, oh, something is more complicated than it seems. And so now let's throw that graphic up there for all of you visual learners. So here's a little chart, and we're going to be able to look at what does it look like when God's sovereignty is simple, when his goodness is simple? What does it look like when God's sovereignty is complicated, but his goodness is simple? 
What does it look like when God's sovereignty is complicated and his goodness is simple? And what does it look like when they're both complicated? So let's start with simple goodness, simple sovereignty. That is heaven. When we get to heaven, God's going to always get what he wants, and it's always going to be good. But that's not where we are right now. Next one, I could say a lot more about this, but I'm going to make it brief. When God's sovereignty is complicated and his goodness is complicated, that is deism. That's where, yeah, we don't really ever know if he's good or not, and we don't really even know if he's sovereign or not. Both of them are complicated. Both of them are not understandable. And deism is a philosophical belief that, yes, there's a God, but you can't know that God. Like, that God does not release any revelation. Um, There's no Bible. There's no religion. There's no experience. Like, the only way you can know that that God is there is because of reason and logic deducing that there must be a supreme creator. And so an unknowable God is a deistic God. And that's what really God becomes when you say his sovereignty is complicated and his goodness is complicated. So what does it look like when God's sovereignty is simple, but his goodness is complicated? That's a cosmic blueprint. Here's what I mean by that. A complicated view of God's goodness is that God is good, but his goodness sometimes looks like evil. Or his goodness sometimes looks like something that isn't good. So for example, God's goodness sometimes looks like a blind person's sight being restored. Other times, it looks like someone losing their sight for some greater purpose. You know, it looks like, sometimes it looks like a car accident being prevented just in the nick of time. Other times, his goodness looks like a car accident happening for a greater reason. And I'm sure there's, you've had someone in your life where maybe you experienced something traumatic. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe someone told you, like, hey, you know, God has a reason for that. I just want to tell you, like, no, I don't agree with that at all. That was not God that killed your child. And so this cosmic blueprint, basically what it says is that everything that happens only happened because it was God's will. And even the most evil things, even genocide, even uh, racism, even um, sin, it all was allowed and, or caused by God for some greater purpose. That's the cosmic blueprint explanation of the world. And that's when you make God's sovereignty simple and his goodness complicated. What does it look like when you make God's sovereignty complicated but his goodness simple? That's the last one, and that's the cosmic battle. So a complicated view of God's sovereignty is this, that God is sovereign, but his sovereignty sometimes looks like him not accomplishing his will in a particular situation. It means that, yeah, he's all-powerful and he is going to win the war, but there are going to be some battles he might not win. There are going to be some specific situations where his will is not done. For example, God's will is that everyone is saved, but not everyone gets saved, right? And so that would be an example where, yes, he's still sovereign, but it's more complicated than it seems. Or it's God's will that everyone who is demonized would be delivered. He, God doesn't want any, we'd all agree, God's will is that nobody would be afflicted by demons, but people are. Also, 
It's God's will that I never act selfishly towards anyone, but sometimes I do. Why is that? Because God may not accomplish his will in every specific situation, but he will accomplish his ultimate will for the world. That's a view of God's sovereignty being more complicated. It's not as simple as he gets what he wants and his goodness being simple. And so I think I've already tipped my hand, but I believe that when you look at the life of Jesus, like when you look at the person who was, as the scriptures say, who came to reveal the nature of God, the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, author clearly states Jesus came to reveal the exact imprint of the nature of God. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? Do you see a cosmic blueprint or do you see a cosmic battle? Do you see him telling people who have leprosy, hey, you're going to keep this leprosy because I've got a greater purpose for you? Do you see him being in control and controlling every single thing that all of his disciples do so that they never do anything against his will and they only do things that are in his will? No. You see Jesus giving freedom away to his disciples and letting them use that freedom, and they don't always use it perfectly, but Jesus is okay with the fact that things that are happening, that they're doing things that are not totally part of his will because he so values their ability to have the freedom to do those things. God so values freedom that he's willing to not always get what he wants in a specific situation. And so there's way more that we could say on this. I know that some of you are already thinking, well, what about this passage? What about this passage? You take all the scriptures, you look at all the scriptures that would support a simple goodness and a simple sovereignty, and you take all the scriptures that would, take, that would support a simple sovereignty and a complicated goodness. I didn't say it totally right, but I think you guys know what I'm saying. You take all those, you line them up, you're going to see just as many verses for, one, for the cosmic blueprint as you do for the cosmic battle. But I really believe that when you look at the holistic view of Scripture, not just one verse or one story, but when you look at the story of God from the beginning to the end, the picture you see in the Scriptures is not a cosmic blueprint. It's a cosmic battle. It's a kingdom of darkness warring against a kingdom of heaven. It's God not doing everything himself, but partnering with human beings to release them to push back the kingdom of darkness. And it's God sometimes having a will for a situation that does not get carried out. Not because he's not sovereign, but because his sovereignty is a little more complicated than it seems. And so finally, I really believe that when we hold fast to the goodness of God, when we really know who he is, we are in his guidance. We're like posturing our heart to be guided by him. So would you stand with me? Father, we want to be guided by you. Let us know if there are any people you're calling us to commit ourselves to. Let us know, Lord, if we're not properly valuing your voice, but if we're only valuing natural wisdom, show us where we need to change, Lord. And God, help us to always be confident of your nature and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.